Imagine I was actually annoyed with somebody reading more Bible. <laughs> uh, I want to say something before I even get into this. Oh, because it just struck me there. Uh, and I might forget. Sorry, James. Um, I might forget. Uh, keep your Bible open at Ephesians 2. And if you don't already, do bring your Bible to our gathering because this is what we lead and preach and teach from the Bible and we'll always have it open. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you one. We do have some. There's some at the back. Go and grab one. Um, he said, it, this is what it said, verse 5, even when we were dead, right, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead. Now, there are people in my life who have died and I still love them. Can I do anything about them not being dead anymore? No. But God loved us when we were dead, but he could do something about us being dead. Isn't that an incredible thought? We were loved by someone who could do something about the fact that we were dead. I want to say that because I might forget later on. I hope I don't. Um, new term. This morning I woke up and I thought it was like winter already because it was a storm. It was blowing a gale and it was torrential rain. New term. Fresh start. Get, it feels like autumn. We're getting back to things. Uh, this Sunday and over the next three Sundays, we're going to be looking at the, the, the three foundations of our church, the three pillars of our church um, why, uh, what we're based on, and, and we've called this series, and we always do family traits or DNA or something like that, but it's really, uh, these things are core to who we are. They're core, core to what I think, I believe, every Christian is and every Christian sh- church should be, um, and so we've called this our family traits, but really we might call it pillars or foundations or something like that, or building blocks or something. Um, one of my favorite things about my job is that I'm on a squeaky bit of the floor as well. Uh, one of my favorite... This is not going well this morning so far. One of my favorite things about my job is I get to do weddings, right? And I've married some of you in this church, and that's great. And one of the favorite things about doing weddings is that I get to meet people's families. And I love it because you're like, whoa, she looks really like her mom, or he looks really like his dad, or whatever it might be. And and you get to see some of the same mannerisms and some of the same characteristics come out and all that kind of thing. Um, What you have in common. I I think that uh, we all inherit things from our families, that we all have uh, even certain values or certain traits that we have, and and maybe you like some of the things you got from your family, maybe you don't. I know there's things that I do, and I, I only do them because that's the way I was raised, or that's the way my family has done things, and I don't necessarily like that about myself. But generally speaking, every family has certain uh, traits that make them who they are and shape how they behave. And, and our church family is, is no different. Uh, and if you're new to our church, uh, this is a great time to be joining us because we're going to be covering the foundations, the things that our church is built on, uh, the things that we, we want to hold tightly and never, de- never ever deviate from. Um, and, it, and, and we have these things summed up in, a, in our vision statement of our church, and it's this. Village Church Belfast desires to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, each other, and our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. We'll just keep that on the screen for a second. This is what we want to define us as a church It's not a random statement. It's not something that we put together years ago when we planted the church just because it sounds good. It's a statement based on three components. Three components which I said that define the Christian life. Gospel, community, and mission. So the first thing you notice there, the first part of that is Village Church Belfast desires to be a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus, right? 
The second part, that's, that's the gospel, that we are a gospel-shaped community of people who love Jesus. That's the gospel part of that. The second part of that is that a gospel-shaped community of people who, who love each other. That's the community. And we're going to unpack each of these, so don't worry if, it, if you're thinking, oh, there's a lot in that. There is. We'll unpack them. And the final part is that, that we love our city of Belfast as we join God in the renewal of all things. That's the mission. And when we, when we look at the Bible and we put these things together, we see that the church is that. And we'll look at this specifically next week, that we who were once not a people have, by God's grace, through the work of Jesus on the cross, been made a people. We are a community. We are a family. But not only that, we are a community of people of Jesus, in Jesus, gathered around what he is doing in the world, his mission. So we can have the next slide up there, please, Stuart, the triangle one. This is what I think, this is how you kind of uh, represent this visually. Gospel, that's loving Jesus. Uh, community, that's loving each other. And mission, that's loving our city or loving the world. Uh, gathered around, all with the purpose of joining in what God is doing in the world, what he has always been doing since the, since the very beginning of creation. And in village, we, we, we want to uh, keep the, the main things the main things. Somebody said that, someone said that to me this week when they were talking about our church. Like, we love how we keep the main things the main things. And that's what we want to do. And the main things are gospel, community, and mission. We, we want to be a simple church, a, a gospel family, brothers and sisters, on mission. That's it. And so over the next few weeks and, and, and throughout this coming year, and especially this term coming up, you're going to hear a lot about these things, not just uh, on Sunday mornings, but, but through every part of our church. Our, our, we're going to be talking about these things in, MC, in our missional communities and, and all, all the, every aspect. We want this to filter down to our kids as well. Um, and as we come back to this vision for us, what God is doing in the world, we're gathered around what God is doing in the world. So let me start at the very, very beginning, and that's the gospel. Um, the gospel comes first in that vision statement because the gospel is the first and most important thing that characterizes the people of God, right? The gospel is, we're going to read in another passage in 1 Corinthians that the gospel is of first importance because we wouldn't exist without the gospel, right? We wouldn't even be a people without the gospel. So I wonder if I asked you, uh, maybe you're uh, a new Christian, maybe you're not a Christian. Uh, lots of you have been Christians for a long time. Um, I wonder if I asked you, what is the gospel, what your response would be? What would you say? We'd probably get a few different answers, probably all around the same kind of things. So let me break this down before we jump into this passage. The word gospel itself, that just means good news. It's from this uh, Greek word that the, the, most of the New Testament was written in which just means good news. It's an announcement of something good that has happened, right? So if somebody has a baby, we tell the good news. We share the, the gospel of, of this baby has been born. It's a really joyful thing. It comes from this uh, ancient Greek term when, when, a, when a battle was won, there would be a messenger that would run back from the, the battlefield and he would be an evangelist, literally sharing the gospel, the good news that the battle has been won. And this is the word that the gospel, that the, the New Testament writers chose to talk about what God has done for us. This idea of a battle being won, the good news, evangelism, evangelion is the Greek word if you want to know, and uh, it's good news. So what is the good news? If we're going to be based on this thing that is good news, what is it? Well, I want to share with you um, 
just a, 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 a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 15. This is 1 Corinthians 15, that's actually four verses, one to four. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul uh, writing to another church, writing to the church in Corinth, and he said, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel, of the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Now there's a whole other sermon in there as well, because you've received it, you've, you've believed it, you, you stand in it, and you're being saved by it. Okay, there's a whole kind of thing in there. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And this is it. This is how he sums up the gospel. This is the, the gospel of first importance that they've received, that they're standing in, that is saved by them, that he's received, that he preached to them. The gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's as good a summation of the gospel as we can get. So what is this good news? The good news is that, that Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. If you want to sum up the gospel really simply, Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And he rose again. According to everything God has said in Scripture. So why is this important? If that's the good news, why does that even matter? Why does Paul say this is the first of, of first importance? Why does he say that, that we should hold fast to this? What does it matter that Jesus died and was buried and rose again? Well, we need to look at our passage in Ephesians 2 to find out. And I will say that if you've been around Village for a while, you've maybe heard me preach this passage before. You've been, this is a, a sermon I will probably continue to preach uh, year on year, uh, hopefully week on, you know, this is, I think Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is about as perfect summary of what God has done for us as you can find in the whole Bible. Um, so I, I make no apologies for preaching this passage again. In this passage in Ephesians 2, we're going to see three things. We're going to see who we were, what God has done, and who we now are. It's that simple. And the first thing we see is that, that who we once were, and this is, it demonstrates to us, illustrates for us our need of the gospel, right? See, the Apostle Paul here is writing to this church in Ephesus and, and also to us, God is bringing this message to us today uh, to remind us exactly what God has done for us. And he starts with this condition that every human being is in before the Holy Spirit intervenes in their lives. Look at verses 1 to 3 again. This is why we need to keep your Bibles open. Verses 1 to 3, I'll read it. He says, and you were dead. I like the way Rachel emphasized that when, when she was reading. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and where by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were. We were dead. Dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked. The Bible is really clear that we were dead. We had no life within us. Right? There was nothing but decay and rot. That's the state we were in. And I think that the reason Paul describes us before Jesus intervenes in this way is because when someone is dead, 
they have absolutely no way of helping themselves, right? They have no way of making themselves undead, undead, not like zombies. No, they may make themselves like alive. A dead person can't decide not to be dead anymore. All a dead person does is just lie there in rot and decay and ruin. They're not even aware that they're dead. And this is what Paul is trying to convey to us, right? That we were completely helpless and lost outside of Jesus. There was nothing we could do to improve our situation. And more than that, right? We didn't even know that we needed our our situation improved. We were dead and we didn't even know we were dead. And not only that, just like a... uh, Me and uh, Abigail were... uh, Who's my wee girl... We were walking down the street the other morning. There was a dead rat on the street. And it looked like something had kind of chewed it up a wee bit. And uh, <laughs> she was fascinated by it as well. And, uh, but, but it just, even as I was coming in that day to read this passage again, you're like, that thing, the only thing that dead thing is going to do is, is decompose, right? It, it's, it, it's just the condition it's in. That's the only trajectory that thing is on. Just like we were. We were headed to ruin. You see how helpless we we are? Paul wants to paint this picture of how helpless we were outside of Jesus. And this is why Paul says, you were dead. But what about the next part? The trespasses and sins in which we once walked. (laughs) Nobody likes to hear that. I don't walk in sin. I don't walk in trespasses. See, kind of most of the time I think we we see sin as, as bad actions we do, right? Like the, the lying, the stealing. You know, you might have learned that in Sunday school if you went to Sunday school as a kid, that, that, that sin is all the bad things that you do. But he puts the word dead here in front of that to show us that sin is not so much an action, but it's a condition. Our, our, sinful, our, our sinful actions are a symptom of our dead condition, right? Our sinful actions are the result of our sinful condition. So I've used this analogy before. You don't, uh, you, don't, um, you don't have a cold because you, you know, have a runny nose and sneeze, right? You, you sneeze and, and have a runny nose because you have the cold. The sneezing and the runny nose is a symptom of the condition. So it is with everyone who is outside of Jesus. You know, we, 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 don't, we sin because that's who we are in our sinful condition. We are dead in the trespasses and sins. Like, we all know this. I talked about this recently when we were doing one of the Psalm 51. We don't have to send, our, send young kids to, like, sin school to learn how to sin. That just comes out of them. It just comes out of all of us. Outside of Jesus, we are helpless to do anything except sin. And this goes against what, uh, you know, the modern world tells us, right? And I'm not against the modern world at all, um, but, but the predominant worldview is that now is that people are basically good. And this is a pretty modern thing, actually, because when, 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 when World War I happened and we had pictures and videos of what that looked like for the first time, people found it easy to believe that everyone's sinful. But somehow we've kind of got to this world's gospel right now that is that left to our own devices, human beings will basically make good decisions. I have books on this. Someone gave me a book on this. That, 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 said that actually, the, the thesis says that, that human beings are actually good. Look at all these good things people have done. But we only have to look at the evidence to see that this isn't true. In fact, we, we probably only have to look at our own lives, don't we? And our own self destructive tendencies 
to see that this isn't true. The Bible says that we are born dead in our sins, by nature children of wrath, unable to help ourselves, and kind of like that dead thing, on our way to destruction and decay. Um, it's like um, it's like that mystery. Uh, when I was a student, I mean, you can imagine it was a bunch of guys living in a flat. wasn't the best, you know. Um, we had this mystery Tupperware in the back of the fridge. Don't know who put it in there. Don't know how long I'd been there. Um, one day, maybe when we were moving out or something, we had to clear out the fridge, and I opened it, and it was definitely what had been some uncooked chicken at one point. And um, now imagine you open that up, and the smell hits you, and you go, I wonder... Uh, how long that's been in there, and you go, well, actually, we can solve this problem. We'll just put some nice spices on it, or maybe a bit of barbecue sauce, and, 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 and that'll take care of it. You know, at least we can't smell it anymore. That's solved the problem. But that doesn't really solve the problem, does it? Um, when you put that meat into the fridge, it was dead, wasn't it? That's the actual condition. It's, you can preserve it for a little while, sure, uh, but it's already started to decay. All you do is delay that process. And likewise, we are in our nature already spiritually dead. We're, we're rotten, and, and we might smell okay for a while. We might even learn how to get good at using spices to cover up that with religion or, or you know, good behavior or good living or, or even culture or whatever. But underneath it all, we are dead. Because we are dead in our sins, no amount of religion or behavior change or, or thought change can, fi- can fix us. Behavior change and religion and all these things only change the outside. It doesn't change the problem inside. He's painting a pretty bleak picture here to begin with, isn't he? But there's one more part of who we once were that I want to look at before we move on. Verse 3, I'll read it again. This is what he says. He said, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were by nature children of wrath. I always think that children of wrath sounds like a really good like, uh, name for a metal band or something. Children of wrath. No, I thought that was funny, but maybe not. Um, but what this means is that, that what he's getting at here is he's getting at a, a, a major teaching of the whole Bible that tells us that, that we are descended from Adam. And as such, when we are born, we inherit the curse of the fall. What this means is that, that Adam, uh, through disobedience and rejecting God, brought sin into the world. And every human being since has inherited the disobedience of that family line. So we are born with a nature that is sinful and cut off from God. And because God is perfectly just and justice must be done and sin must be dealt with, we are born subject to his wrath because he is going to deal with sin. And by the way, we all want that to happen, don't we? We want an end to uh, invasions. We want an end to refugee crises. We want an end to, to abuse. We want an end to all these things. But because we are born with that sinful nature, that wrath falls on us too. 
We were by our very nature children of wrath. And so we require this new birth. We require a new nature. We need to be moved from this family line to another family line. We need a new nature, but we're totally helpless to do anything about it. This is who we were. This is our need of the gospel. And it is a bleak picture, isn't it? It's strong language. Children of wrath, death, sin, trespasses, disobedience. It's a pretty bleak picture. And thankfully, it doesn't stop there. He goes on in the next few verses to show us what God has done. And what God has done. This is what what I'm calling the work of the gospel. Look at verses 4 to 9 with me. He says, but God. So we were dead. All that. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, i.e. after the, the age that we're in right now, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For grace For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Probably the the most important words ever written in any language. Certainly the first two, but God. But God. You were helpless. But God. God intervened. I listened to this little thing um, some morning. I mean, not every morning, but some mornings in the shower. It's like uh, R.C. Sproul, who was this, uh, he, he's, he's in heaven now, but he, he was this uh, pastor and teacher and there's a little podcast called Ultimately, and it's like the ultimate things of Christianity. And it's this little one or two minute thing. It's just a really encouraging word. And the other day or last week it was, I heard, he heard him talk about this. He said, it's like, um, I can't even say it's emotional. He's like, God came to your funeral and took you out of your grave and breathed life into you. Came to your funeral. Why? Because of the great love with which he loves you. Like I said before at the start, we, I can love all the people in my life that have passed away. I can love them to death and I still do, but I can't do anything about that. But he loved us when we were dead and he could do something about it and he did do something about it. So I want you to hear this this morning. God loves you. <laughs> and we don't say that enough, do we? We don't think about that enough. Like, God loves you. We should say that to each other all the time. When you're feeling overwhelmed or beat up or betrayed or discouraged, God loves you. <laughs> not as a cliche, not as a platitude, but as a reality. Like, God loves you. How does he love you? With a great love. And because of this great love with which he loves you, he has raised you from death to life. Maybe you haven't considered that in a long time. Maybe you've never considered that. (laughs) Consider it right now. God loves you. And it's because of this great love for us, 
Verse 5 tells us that he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Right? So this means that he has made us alive with Christ. We have been raised up with Christ. You know what he's saying? He's saying that just as God's power operated in the dead body of Christ to raise him from the dead, that same power has operated in us to raise us from our spiritual death. Just in the way that God brought, brought Jesus back from the dead, he brought us from death to life. If you are a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, then, you, then a miracle has happened in your life. Like an absolute miracle. You've been raised from the dead. And you know, this might sound like hyperbole or I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. This is what the Bible says. This is what God has done in all of us. You were dead and now you're alive. Becoming a Christian, you might think it's a choice to live in a different way, but it's not like, it's not just choosing to live your life with a different set of values. It's not like, I mean, I'm pretty sure every week I say, I'm going to start, like we do this all the time, I'm going to start, we're going to start eating healthy, <laughs> going to go to the gym and you know, all that kind of stuff. This is, not what, this is not what becoming a Christian is. Becoming a Christian is a miracle. It's a miracle you could never perform for yourself. It's a supernatural act of God and a pure gift of his amazing grace. That's all it is. Jesus didn't enter death so that he could be raised from the dead. He entered death so we could be raised from the dead. And if I never preach another sermon in my life, I just want to keep preaching that that he went down into death so that he could pull us up out of death with him. Like think about, um, think about the first Easter Sunday. Think about the first resurrection Sunday. Life enters into Jesus' body and he walks out of that tomb. But when he, as he walks out of that tomb, he's bringing you and me with him. <laughs> like it's incredible. I was saying earlier uh, as we were praying, like that, uh, you know, before our gathering, that, uh, you know, I, you could talk about this stuff all day. You could talk about this stuff for the rest of your life and never do it justice. And I, I, I want us to realize how incredible this is. And here's the other incredible thing about it. Um, this is all in the past tense, right? Paul is writing here in the past tense. He, he's referring to what Jesus has already done on the cross. He's not talking about some a religious gradual process of, you know, I'm getting slightly better or I'm becoming a more godly person. And yes, that is happening in all of us. But he's talking here about something definite. It's called the past perfect tense. He's talking about something definite that Jesus did for you all at once in the past. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins. Over and done with. The righteous, that's Jesus. For the unrighteous, that's us so that he might bring us to God. Jesus, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous, and on the cross, he became our sin. He, he, you know, he became that rotten meat. He took on the, the, the wrath. He was treated by God like a follower of Satan. He was treated by God like a son of disobedience, like a child of wrath. Just so that, that we didn't have to be. This is God's amazing grace. The only reason Jesus died is because of our sin so that he could heal the separation, our separation from God. Bring us close to God again. Paul continues again in verse 6. Still in the past tense. Notice this. He says, um, he doesn't say that God will seat us. He says that God has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, right? God has 
seated us in the heavenly places with Christ, in Christ. Now listen to this, church. In God's eyes, if you're a Christian this morning, in God's eyes, you are seated with Christ at the place of honor at God's side. Right now, you couldn't be in a higher place in heaven right now. God has literally put you in Jesus' seat. <laughs> and notice that he says, we are seated in the heavenly realms in Christ, that we are in Jesus. This is, this is a doctrine that we call union with Christ, that we are in Jesus, that we are one with him, that we have become engrafted onto him. So all that was ours, our sin and our guilt and our shame and our deadness, <laughs> if you want to put it that way, all that stuff that was ours becomes his. And then all that is his, his glory and honor and peace and mercy and love and eternal life become, becomes ours. The blessings that the, the Father has heaped on the Son are ours. Every spiritual blessing. We share in his inheritance. We are seated in the heavenly realms because we are in him. Right? When we trust in Jesus, we are engrafted onto him, and that's why we are brought out of the tomb with him. You see how that works? Where he goes, we go. And this changes everything, I think, for me, for all of us. Like, we're not the same anymore. We really do have a new nature. This is why we, we start with the gospel. This is why the gospel is our foundation. Uh, our very first Sunday here, we've said this for a long time in Village, but our very first Sunday here at I said, and, and I, I want to keep saying this over and over and over again, is that we can't offer you anything except Jesus. But in offering you Jesus, we offer you everything. We, 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 this is why we start with the gospel, because the, the gospel literally means the start of our lives. Because before the gospel, we were dead, right? And so we can't help but be shaped by the gospel. No more than you can help being shaped by your DNA, right? My DNA means that I've gone bald. I can't help that. I wish I could, but, you know, I can't help that. You can, you can no more help... I'm going to say this, and it might sound blasphemous. You can no longer... You can no more help being shaped by the gospel than I can help being bald. <laughs> because you are in Jesus. We are gospel people because we have been made by the gospel. And this brings us on to our third lesson. We are now who we are now. So we've looked at who we once were. That's our need of the gospel. We were dead. We were children of wrath, sons of disobedience. What God has done, but God, God has intervened. Right? He has, he has brought us, made us alive with Christ by his grace. And who we now are, we are shaped by the gospel. Uh, we know the, the message of the gospel is good news. But we want to take a second and think about what that means for our lives here and now. Like, what does it mean to be shaped by the gospel? We have it in our vision statement, a gospel-shaped community. What does this mean? Why do we have that in there? Look at verse 8. He says, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. He uses this past perfect tense again. He says, You have been saved. This is a... This is a, a complete work. It's done. It's finished. There's nothing to add, nothing to contribute. Contribute. It, it's, it's finished. It's past. It's perfect. It's done. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. 
You see, we, we sometimes think of our salvation like this, right? We, and, and if you've heard me preaching on this passage before, I've used this one before as well. And again, I want to remind us of it. So we sometimes think of the gospel as something like this. I was drowning in the sea. I was struggling, gasping for breath, thrashing around. And Jesus threw me a lifeline. And in my moment of need, and my dying breath, I reached out and grabbed onto it, and he pulled me onto the shore. Now, that's a pretty good message, isn't it? But that's just not the gospel. It sounds good, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is that you weren't just drowning and struggling in the water. You already had drowned. You were floating face down the water, you know? You were sinking to the bottom. And Jesus jumps into the water and, and drowns himself. And somehow by the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit is brought back to life and, and pulls you, pulls your lifeless body out of the water onto the shore and breathes new life into your lifeless body. That's the gospel. Because his salvation is nothing to do with you. It's by grace you have been saved. Not of works. Not of your own doing. So that no one can boast. It's because of his mercy. It's because of the great love with which he loved you and his, his saving grace alone. You have been saved by grace through faith. Your salvation is only because in his grace, is his, in his grace God caused the Holy Spirit to intervene in your life and raise you from the dead. Nothing I can claim to. I have no part in this. He chose me and he, he breathed life into me. And this is why Paul goes on to say at the end here in verse 10, I love this bit. He says that we are God's workmanship. This is this uh, word that in the original language, it's, it's, it's where we get our word poem from. Uh, it literally means masterpiece, right? We are God's masterpiece. Now, I've been lucky enough to, be, uh, to visit some cool art galleries all over the world, and I've seen masterpieces by all kinds of incredible artists like Caravaggio and Michelangelo, Michelangelo and Monet and Matisse and Van Gogh and Warhol and Hearst and even Banksy last month. If you call him a, a master, I'm not sure. Some people might disagree. But, but here's the thing. These masterpieces are incredible, and, and sometimes you see a piece of art and you can spend hours looking at it, or sometimes you listen to a song that's a masterpiece and you get lost in it, or read a poem, whatever it is that does it for you. These masterpieces are incredible, but not one masterpiece that I've ever seen in my life has created itself. <laughs> it just can't happen. If it weren't for Michelangelo carving David out of that piece of marble, they would just still be a piece of marble. A masterpiece can't create itself. Look at verse 10 closely. For we are God's masterpiece, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We were created. This word means that it's, these two words together, it means something like this. It's a work of art, a masterpiece that is created that through its creation reflects the character and nature of its creator. Does that make sense? So in the way that you might look at a piece of Tim Farrell art and you go, that's Tim Farrell, right? I said that to him the other night. He's done this design. I'm like, that looks like, yeah, that looks like one of Tim's, right? God, when he creates this new life in us, it reflects him. <laughs> Isn't that so cool? That we are God's work of art. We are his masterpiece. We are God's poem. God has composed your life into a beautiful work of art that glorifies him. You might not feel that. I know most days. But that's what, 
that's what he sees when he looks at us. He sees a work of art. He sees a masterpiece that his son gave to him. Imagine that. My kids, like, do, they're not very talented artists. <laughs> they do like, these little things. You're like, that's so cool. Or, like, build something like Lego. That's amazing. Jesus, the son, takes us who through his finished work, I've finished, Dad. And the father says, that's a masterpiece. Isn't that beautiful? The same idea, this, the same idea of creation is, is used all throughout the Bible when it speaks of the actual creation of the world. At creation, God spoke something into the nothingness and life was born. He didn't start with raw material. He wasn't like Michelangelo. What is Michelangelo's David, right? Isn't it? I'm getting that right. The sculpture? Yeah, okay. He didn't start with a lump of, of, of rock. Jesus start, or God started with nothing. He started with nothing and created everything. He spoke and light that did not exist burst into to the darkness. And, and when God saved you, he spoke a life into being that did not exist before. And when you put your trust in Jesus, God declares that you are a new creation, that you are a finished masterpiece. And in that moment, the same power that the universe, that, that same power that spoke the universe into being creates a righteousness in you. Which means that all we have to do is submit ourselves to Jesus and let his righteousness work in us and through us. This is what it means to be shaped by the gospel. You see, being shaped by the gospel actually isn't about living a holy life. We, we think, oh, we've got to do all these things, there'll be this, there'll be this, and we try and we try and we try. But actually, Living a holy life is a result of being shaped by the gospel. Just as the way that previously sinful actions was a result of a sinful nature, now living a holy life is a result of being a new creation in Jesus. Being gospel-shaped isn't about doing godly things. It's about letting Christ do godly things through you. You see how that works? And, and, and where this really, the rubber hits the road for me is, if we ask ourselves a question, how often, think about this, you don't have to shout out any answers or something, unless you want to, but how often do you feel like a failure as a Christian? How often do you feel that? I, I bet all of us can remember the last time we thought that. It may even be this morning. Maybe it's a constant you know, thing in the background of your mind. I'm a failure. And most of the time when we do that, <laughs> It's because we're looking at our, ourselves. We're looking at our performance. We're looking at how, much, how well am I living up to being what Jesus says. How much am I living up to this thing? I, oh, I've sinned in this way again. I don't pray enough. I don't I do good works enough. I've never shared the gospel with anyone. I'm so selfish. Blah, 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 blah. On and on it goes. But as long as we keep basing our salvation on what we do or don't do, we're going to just keep feeling like failures. But you know what never fails? Jesus' blood. It never fails. The gospel never fails. So all of us, all of any of us can do is keep going back to the gospel and relying on his grace. By grace you have been saved. It's not about your works. It's a gift of God. And so no matter how much you sin or have sinned or are going to sin, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Wow, what a relief that is. And for those of you that are tempted to try and make God love you more, there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore either. You can't earn any of this. Your salvation, your life, your future 
is completely based on who Jesus is and what he has done and therefore what God says about you. Here's masterpiece. It's class, isn't it? I'm so relieved by this message because I, yeah, I need this. I feel all the time, but yet I'm his masterpiece. I don't even, there's no timer up. I don't know how long I've been talking for, but I'll just keep going for a wee while. You see, when we, when we receive Jesus, our lives are never the same again, are they? <laughs> um, we see the world in a completely different way. We have a new nature. The de- decisions we make are different. Everything we do is based on the truth that God is making all things new and we become part of that renewal. That's why we have this in our vision statement. We, we, we live completely different, differently to the way we did before and have different priorities now. I love this quote by Tim Keller. He says, the gospel is not about something we do, but about what has been done for us, and yet the gospel results in a whole new way of life. So this is interesting. I spent all my time saying, it's not about you. You're a finished work. You're a masterpiece. But yet, it still results in a new way of life, doesn't it? You see, the grace we receive changes who we are. And so often we think about what it means to be gospel-shaped. We think it's the ways that, that the, the gospel shapes our lives and our, our, our church or whatever, right? So we think being gospel-shaped is all the ways that the, the gospel shapes our lives, but that's kind of the wrong way of thinking about it. It's the wrong way around. You see, we don't try and, uh, you know, modify our behavior to the gospel so that we'll be gospel-shaped. We are shaped by the gospel because of the new life that we have in Jesus, and so our behavior is shaped by the life that is within us. Does that make sense? We're not going to try and make ourselves gospel-shaped by doing X, Y, and Z. We're going to allow the truth of the gospel to sit in our hearts and make us alive and allow our lives to be changed as a result. In other words, our nature is shaped by the gospel, and so our actions are shaped by the gospel. Before you were saved, everything about you found its purpose in, in earthly, temporary things. But now we're shaped by the gospel, everything about you find its purpose in the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So your life is no longer about you. I'm sorry to tell you. But it's a, it's a freeing thing, this. Your life is no longer about you. Your life is no longer about how you feel day to day. It's not about how well or how badly things are going for you. Your life is about resting on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and just living from that truth. Like when we send Bex off in the sabbatical, it's not, her, her, her life isn't based on how well the kids' ministry is going or not. It's based on the fact that Jesus lived, died, buried, rose again, and ascended to heaven where she now sits with him. Amen? Your life is built on the fact that Jesus lived a human life, died a death, died on the cross, was buried, ascended, and then rose again, and then ascended to heaven. So I want to just kind of finish maybe by looking at what this kind of life looks like. What does this kind of church look like? Well, I think very basically... And it's a lifelong pursuit of considering the gospel and living the gospel, isn't it? But, but very basically, it's, it's in every part of life, every decision, every problem, every victory, as individuals and as a church family, we ask the question, how does the gospel apply to the situation? How does the gospel apply right now? How am I applying the gospel in my life right now? So if there's one action point to take away from this message this morning, it's, it's this, in every area of our lives, we need to ask ourselves, how do we apply the gospel here? Whether it's parenting, whether it's work, whether it's relationships, 
whatever. So, for example, in our singleness and in our marriages, we apply the gospel by remembering that we, that we find true fulfillment and belonging only in Christ. Or when someone wrongs us or hurts us, we don't need an apology before we can forgive them because Christ forgives us long before we even apologize to him. So when we sin, we apply the gospel by resting on the fact that our salvation is not based on our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. We put others first and live sacrificially because this is what Christ has done for us. And maybe most importantly, we lived lives inclined towards others, serving them in love and sharing this good news with them. The point is that, that we need the gospel every moment of every day of our lives. That's the point here. This is what it means to, to be gospel-shaped for us as individuals and as a family, as a community. We need the gospel every moment of our lives. For a long time. It doesn't matter. We need the gospel just as much now as we ever did. This is one of the things that we really want to characterize our, characterize? Characterize our church family is that we all are equal in how much we need Jesus' grace. You know? We're all equal in that. The moment we think the gospel is only for people who don't know Jesus, that's the moment when we turn in on ourselves and self-righteousness grows. If we begin to... Our worship gatherings are going to become about what we do for God and not about what he has done for us. If the gospel doesn't remain central, our church will become inward focus. We'll forget grace and we'll turn to like some kind of performance-driven community. We won't have any joy. <laughs> and if the gospel isn't central, we certainly won't be motivated to share it with others. But when the gospel is of first importance, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when we're shaped by the gospel, it will become a place of refuge for the weary. It will become a, a, a place of hope for those in need. When the gospel is central, our community will be a place of worship, a place of worship saturated with humble dependence. And our fellowship, our community, our times together, the way we love one another, it will be focused on what unites us instead of what divides us. Our discipleship will be about not all the ways we're messing up, and that will make us then want to obey his commands and follow him more. And listen, here's the incredible thing. When the gospel is central, mission will just be the natural result. We'll be driven outwards to share his good news with others. Now, here's my final, final thought, because I know I've said that before, but here's my final, final thought. Literally no idea how long I've been talking. Sometimes we think about our salvation as just this future hope. And again, this is one of the things I love preaching about. I've said it before many times and I'll say it again many times. We, we sometimes think of our salvation as this future hope, something to look forward to, a hope that gets us through the hard times, a hope that helps us with our failures, a hope that you know someday we're gonna be there and uh, in God's presence, it's all gonna be great. And our salvation is that. And I don't want ever to lose that. We need to remind ourselves that we have this future hope. 
But here's the point. According to this passage today that we've read, our salvation is not just a future hope, it's a present reality. It's a future hope, it's a present reality. And if we could grasp, if we could grasp the reality of that, even just for a wee minute, I wonder how differently we would live our lives. Like, think about this. We are saved by grace. We are seated in the heavenly places. We are in Christ. We are his masterpiece. Consider those things. And it's hard. I, I get it. It's hard. I'm, I'm the same. A, I'm forgetful. B, I'm busy. C, I'm sinful. We live in a broken world. We're still grieving for the loved ones who have died. We still see people we love reject Christ. But we're in Jesus. We are in Jesus. It's a done deal. It's secure. It's sure. It's forever. It's happening. It's, it's done. And we need to grasp this. And, and us being seated in the heavenly realms right now in Christ is as sure as you are sitting on the chair you're sitting on. And if we could just grasp that just for a minute, like, like what, how would that affect how we, would we continue? Would we worry about what other people think of us? Would we be afraid to share the gospel? Would we have different priorities? Would we change how we, we think about and treat others? How we treat our own bodies? Would we treasure different things? Because here's the truth. We used to be dead in sin, but now we are alive in Christ. We used to have no hope, but now we are saved by grace. We used to follow the course of this world, but now we are seated in the heavenly realms. We used to be in our nature children of wrath, but now we are new creations in Christ. This is our future present reality. We're going to keep talking about this stuff over the coming weeks in this term. We're going to specifically talk about how this uh, turns us outwardly to focus on what it means to bring this message to, to the community around us, to our family members, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our colleagues. That Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. Come Holy Spirit and help us live lives shaped by the gospel. Father, we ask for that for everyone in our church family. We pray, Lord, Could we, would you help us, Lord, to believe your grace, to accept it? That you look at each one of us here in Jesus and you see a masterpiece. You see a finished work. Help us to rest in that, Lord. Our, you know, we're fed so many lies by ourselves and by the world and by the devil about how we're not good enough and, and how we need to prioritize X, Y, and Z and, and how we need to strive and try. Your gospel is a gospel of grace and rest what you've done for us. Help us be a church family that prioritizes this, that never stops saying that to each other. <laughs> it never stops reminding each other of these deep, deep truths, this, this present reality that is now ours. And Father, may you help us live lives shaped by this truth, not by striving and trying to live a different lives, but just by allowing that truth to, to, to work through us, to live through us. Jesus, we love you. I pray especially for the, the weary ones and the tired ones and the struggling ones this morning.